Welcome to StellarCast, the Stellar Recruitment Podcast. Let's go on an inspiring journey. By listening, learning, and taking key actions from our own recruitment experts, as well as industry leaders and inspirational individuals. By unlocking our own transformative change, we can all become the best versions of ourselves. Hey guys, thanks for, for joining us. This is the fir- very first episode of the, the new StellarCast. Uh, the goal of the StellarCast really is to unpack how successful individuals and organisations have developed, uh, I guess, their formula for success uh, and also uh, speak to inspirational individuals that may help you uh, reach your potential uh, or inspire growth in your own uh, particular life or career. Um, It's near and dear to our heart as, uh, I guess, uh, as a stellar business. We've got a, a deep passion, Robbie and I, when we started the company of helping people reach and exceed their potential so this sort of ties back to this and and, and also our values and vision uh, and, and why we started Stella so we're grateful that you've taken the time to tune into this and we really hope that you enjoy some of the exciting people that we speak to both external to Stella and some of our own Stella folk as they share information that uh, hopefully you guys can get value from so really thank you for taking the time to listen and without further ado our very first guest as part of the Stellar Cars is Martin Moore, or Marty Moore, as he's effectively known. Um, and he's got a wonderful track record and success uh, as a chief executive, further to his uh, very fast-growing and highly successful podcast. So I hope you guys uh, really enjoyed this very first podcast. Rightio. Well, uh, we'll get started. Marty, thanks for joining us here today. We've known one another for a little while now through a mutual friend of ours, Paul Quilliam. And just to, to give the listeners who aren't familiar with your backstory a bit of detail about who you are and where you've come from, we'll start with the, the big impressive stuff first. So university dropout, but it gets better. You uh, went on to become a CEO of a multi-billion dollar business and despite being a a university dropout, obviously very curious, lifelong learner, you've gone on to pick up an MBA from QT grad school of business. You're also a graduate of the esteemed Harvard Business School's advanced management program. I think uh, most people in Brisbane circles would know you well as the CEO who turned around CS Energy and uh, along with your team. Implemented a lot of change, driving that uh, EBITDA from 18 mil to north of uh, 440 in just five years. So great result. And of late, you've discovered and now pursuing your true purpose, which is to improve the quality of leaders globally. Each week, uh, reaching tens of thousands of leaders in over 60 countries. If you're chart-topping five-star rated podcasts, the No Bullshit Leadership podcast series, which is fantastic. And I'm told you guys are closing in already on uh, close to 750,000 downloads, which is amazing. So thanks for joining us, Marty. I'm going to throw, all all that's great. I'm going to throw back to maybe a point in time where that wasn't the case and and maybe, you know, go back to when you finished school. Where were you at the time and and what were your career dreams and aspirations as a high school graduate? Well, you've done a really good fly over the top there, Sean, but do you want to start with the ugly bits? I can give you the ugly bits. Um, <laughs> That'll be good. So look, I went to, um, I was very privileged growing up. I, I was one of five children in a family that didn't have a huge amount of money, but my parents uh, valued education incredibly highly. And so they gave us the best education they possibly could. My brother and I attended 
a fantastic school in Sydney called St. Joseph's College at Hunters Hill, also known for sports fans as the Wallabies Nursery, where they bring through a lot of wallabies, has, has the most wallaby caps from any school in Australia. And um, the education that I received there was just incredible, both in terms of academic, uh, sporting and life, I guess. Interestingly, though, when I went out from school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was fortunate enough to have graduated high school with the ability to do any degree I wanted to in any university in Australia, so I had the pick of the bunch and didn't really want to do medicine because I wasn't really uh, a fan of the side of blood, so I decided to become a lawyer, and that proved to be probably one of the dumbest decisions of my life. I had absolutely no appetite for the law. I found it dull. I wasn't really interested in it, and when I went to university, I came out of a highly structured boarding school environment and went into a completely unstructured university environment. And socially, as an 18-year-old, I was extraordinarily immature. So I was like a a 15-year-old in my head and life experience, but had to try and contend with this very unstructured environment that required a little bit of maturity. So I just went nuts for the first few years. And it was all, you know, rugby, beer and dating women, which I hadn't done for a long time, uh, (laughs) i.e. ever. And I went off the rails. So I did that for a few years before I regained my balance and came back to the values that I'd learned about, you know, in my youth and, uh, and going through school. Now, fantastic. Obviously, uh, interesting uh, journey coming out of that highly structured environment to the less structured environment. But uh, despite that, obviously found your way and, and no doubt took some good lessons. So it's probably a good intersection into the next question. And I think it goes without saying that arguably in our lifetimes, there's never been a more challenging or unique predicament in terms of what we're facing now with COVID and I think uh, resilience is being tested and very paramount at this moment in time. I understand, no doubt, that uh, you've had some testing moments in your life and your career before this and obviously you're now working with other leaders to help them build resilience through this uh, challenging phase. So what can you sort of share with us about your own journey with resilience and any sort of tips about how people might uh, build resilience during this uh, much-needed time. Yeah, so look, I think I think that was one thing I always had in pretty good measure. I always worked out that if something bad happened, I just had to suck it up and move forward. I was never one to dwell on failures or falling short of a mark. I just doubled down. I just basically said, okay, well, it's, I've just got to do better at that. And I think that was very much in the environment of my upbringing was, you know, when you don't make it, you just do better. You know, you just try and be the best you can be. And I know it sounds almost like a a bad cliche, but it's really about turning out your best performance on any one day and always just seeking to be better than you were the day before. So that's always held me in good stead. And in terms of resilience, I worked out fairly early on that you can make some pretty big mistakes and they're actually not fatal. It's actually okay. You come through this stuff all right. And when you do that, and when you don't develop this fear of facing into adversity, it then becomes much easier to handle because you know you're going to get through it one way or another. And 99.9% of the time, that's the way it rolls. So getting that confidence is really important. But there are a few techniques that, um, that I teach in particular to the leaders that I mentor around how to become more resilient personally. The most important thing is to not actually get caught up in things you can't influence. And this goes back all the way to Stephen Covey's model in um, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, where he talks about the circle of concern and the circle of influence. And it talks about, you know, not spending your time on the things that you can't control or change in any way, but to spend the time on the things you can. And, you know, where we are at the moment is a particularly good example of people getting caught up in their circle of concern, worried more about 
you know, what's going to happen with COVID, what will happen with, you know, border closures, what will happen with, you know, restrictions on business and our movements, what will happen to my parents who are in an aged care facility, all of the things that you have zero control over, and that tends to dominate people's thoughts. So getting out of that and working on the things you can actually make a difference in uh, is the place you should be spending your energy. And that makes a huge difference to your resilience. Um, when you have a couple of these just basic coping tools, you're less afraid to face into the things that challenge you. I think another really important tool is the, the tool of perspective. So uh, very important to have perspective on what's going on. And I believe that no matter how bad this particular circumstance gets uh, with the pandemic, we'll look back on this in 10 years' time and go, actually, that was actually pretty good. That sort of changed the way we did things. I think there's some good tangible tips there, uh, techniques, um, Marty, which is great. But I think uh, for me and no doubt the listeners, I think uh, real-life examples and stories uh, perhaps are easy to uh, relate to, perhaps, and, and get across in a practical example in uh, M, your uh, talented daughter did uh, allude to a challenging phase, which inspired me the way she described it. So can you share with us any examples where you've had to utilize or build resilience yourself through a challenging period of time? Yeah, Sean, look, I think the most important times to build resilience is when you have sustained pressure for a really long period. And um time for me that was very critical was probably, it's almost 20 years ago now, when I first moved to Queensland, I had just taken on a new sea level job uh, with a top 50 mining company. I was living on the Gold Coast and working in Brisbane, so I had sort of, you know, two and a half hours of commute every day. I was going through divorce uh, at that particular point in time. I was uh, studying my executive MBA, which I was doing on the side. And all of these things just sort of came together in a perfect storm. And just the, um, the intensity over a huge period of time of being able to handle all those things that came at me and to work on almost no sleep and to be able to uh, spend enough time with my daughters as they were going through an extraordinarily challenging time for them, all of those things really put me under pressure. And there were times when I thought to myself, look, I, I should just ease my load a little bit. This is going to kill me. So I'm going to take something off. And the obvious thing to drop would have been my uh, executive MBA, which I was studying at the QUT Business School. And I thought to myself, any time that that came up, well, there's two things, right? The first thing is, I don't want to get a pattern here, right? I've already dropped out of my undergrad degree. I don't want to drop out of my postgrad. Uh, and the second thing was, if I can't handle this amount of pressure now, which was extreme, but if I can't handle this amount of pressure now, but I thought to myself, if I can't handle this amount of pressure now, then I'm in trouble because my career aspirations are going to put me in a place where I have to deal with this sort of sustained pressure over a period of time. And if I can't actually handle this, then what am I going to do when I'm a chief executive of a business that demands this type of attention, this type of stress, and this type of um, resilience that I need to have built into me? And so every time I wanted to drop back, I just had that in mind and I kept going. And at the end of it all, when things did start to ease off, oh, and I forgot to say the company that I was working for then uh, went into a hostile takeover um, from a larger mining company that took over MIM over that time. So I was dealing with a hostile takeover with all of the things that come with that, you know, uh, uh, you know restructuring, redundancies, uh, all those things that I had to manage. So it was an, an incredibly challenging time. But at the end of it, having got through it, i got to tell you, I had an incredible amount of confidence that I could actually do anything. And that's what building resilience is about. You get the confidence to step into any situation, no matter how tough it is. Yeah, I mean, I think that's – I admire you for going through that, mate, because 
any one of those things independently is a handful, but to do that all concurrent is quite remarkable. W- were there any things that you utilised through the period of time to survive? And, and I use that survival, I think it is, but it must have been like a survival thing because you're trying to be a business leader, you're trying to be an executive student, you're trying to be a father, you're also navigating a divorce. W- were there any things that you did, uh, not that you had too much bandwidth, to navigate that and deal with the stress? Oh, look, to be honest, it was extraordinarily inelegant how I got through that. <laughs> there were times where I was just in survival mode. There were times yeah, where yeah. Um, I'd be in my office in the afternoon. I'd just say to my yeah. assistant, Kellyanne, just, I've got to close my door for 15 minutes, close my blinds, no calls, no meetings, just give me 15 yep. minutes, and I put my head down on the desk and have a nap. Yeah, That was the only way I was going to get to the end of the day. Yep. And so there were times where I did those things just for survival. But I realized that you could actually juggle things uh, as much as possible. And some things have hard constraints. You can't actually move them. So uh, as much as I would like to move my divorce, probably sooner rather than later, uh, I still had to go through that. That, that, was, that was not something I could shift around. So, you know, you put the things in place that are hard constraints and then you build the other things where you have more flexibility around those. So it was easy for me to say, okay, well, for three days, I've got to concentrate on this. I won't do any university reading. And then on the weekend, I'd sit up till, you know, one o'clock in the morning doing the assignment. It's just, you know, it's just juggling life. It's just like anyone else does. Well, look, um, I guess sort of moving beyond that real-life example of resilience, I think the challenge uh, which uh, leaders and, and businesses are now confronted with now more than ever is how do you remain relevant and how do you continue to add value or deliver value, be that as a leader or as an organisation, I know that's something that you're passionate about and work with your cohorts a lot with, but what are are your tips that you can share in relation to delivering value? So, Sean, there's two very different things to examine here. First is the uh, individual as a leader and the other is an organisation. And for the individual as a leader, there are some things that I I think a lot of leaders haven't had to face into before. It's very easy when you've got uh, a lot of your people just in the same physical proximity. And you can see what they're doing. You have the visibility of what they're doing. Now that a lot of people are working remotely, leadership skills are being put much more to the test. And it's forcing us to go down a path, which is actually a really, really beneficial path, which is looking at outputs and not inputs. So the problem when you've got people around you is that you tend to look at inputs. How hard are they working? How much time do they spend at their desk? All those types of things. When you have to focus on outputs, that's when you can make that shift to looking at value and value alone. So most organizations, the biggest problem they have is the value leakage because they put so much resource and effort into things that don't actually create the most value for the company. And I see this time and time again, and every organization I've worked in, people are just there spinning their wheels. And shutting down activity that doesn't create value is probably one of the most difficult things for a leader to do. The reason for this is because this activity gets a life of its own. People become accustomed to it. They fall in love with it. And If they've got a big workload, they feel as though they're needed. And so there's this sense of being needed and being indispensable that comes from being able to say, I'm so busy, look at me, I can't scratch myself. But that doesn't mean that anything that they're doing actually creates value for the organization. So for a leader, the number one thing is to be able to define and articulate what the things are that bring value to the organization. And you'd be incredibly surprised, or maybe not Sean, I don't know, but a lot of your listeners would be, to hear that many organizations don't have that real clarity 
around what those things are that drive the most value for their organization. Uh, and value comes in heaps of different forms. It's not just financial value. It could be value in, you know, community outcomes or, you know, environmental outcomes or, you know, risk reduction creates value. There's a whole range of categories of value you can create. But without that clarity and clear focus on it, what's going to happen is that just activity is going to spring up. And just you'll have- there, Marty, just to sort of cut in there, but how, is there an example you can relate to or talk about where you've helped a, a leader organization actually define what that value add activity is and getting rid of some of the noise or the fluff or whatever you want to call it? Is there anything you can sort of allude to that? Oh, absolutely. This is what, it's what I spent most of my executive career trying to do, which was to um, eliminate the non-valuating stuff and to get a real focus on things that were going to make a difference. So here's a classic, right? We had a team in one of the organizations I worked in, which was doing a whole lot of process creation. They were creating processes for engineering tasks, and they were spending a massive amount of time uh, in this big team of people writing processes and procedures. The problem was it was adding almost no value to how the work was done, even though they had this sense that if I can get a better process, I'll get a better outcome. Those better outcomes never came through, and there was a real disconnect between spending a whole lot of time, energy, and money creating processes and then getting a better result on the back end with the people who are actually doing the work and using the processes. So we can do a lot of stuff assuming that there's going to be a link between what we do and the value that's created, and that's almost never the case. You've got to really clearly trace the value that says, if I'm going to actually create a better process, what tells me that I've got some value out of that? Is it lower costs? Is it greater efficiency? Is it better availability of assets? Is it greater reliability in the, in the kit that we run? What are the things that tell me value is being created? And if there's no link, then all that money on the front end is just wasted. So yeah, I get that notion of, of getting rid of the noise to focus on the tasks that really add value. How do leaders or organizations uh, free themselves up to sort of get in that helicopter to take the time to discern what those things are beyond the BAU that exists uh, on top of the extra complexity that is COVID? That's a great question because having that brain space to do that starts right at the top. So I'm not sure whether you're familiar with uh, the, the levels of work theories that have come through over the years. Um, uh, one of the great books that I always recommend to people is The Leadership Pipeline by Ram Charam and Steve Drotter. Uh, great book talking about the different levels in an organization and the fact that each of those levels has a different purpose and it has a different time horizon that those leaders should focus on at the different levels. And so as a CEO, you should be basically focused on the perpetuation of the organization. That's it. You know what, What's going to happen five to 10 years out? Is the organization still going to be here? Is it still going to be profitable? How will its customers and stakeholders change? What does the competitive environment look like? That's where you should spend most of your time. But from my experience as a CEO, even though you're supposed to be looking five years plus you know, out into the future, you know, most days I was lucky to look five days out or five hours out sometimes, you know, it's, you just get caught up with the alligators. So, uh, so the art of being able to step back relies on you doing your own job at your own level and not overcompensating for or overfunctioning for the people below you and doing their job, which you'd be surprised how many leaders do. Most leaders work below the level they're actually paid to work at and their bosses do the same thing and their bosses do the same thing. So the ability to stand back and really think about value starts at the top with the chief executive who can really clearly articulate the things that are priorities for the business. And then when you go through your planning processes down below that, anything that doesn't directly feed into one of those 
value drivers doesn't get done. It gets wiped off the list. And that's where the leaders below you are going to fight. And that's where they're going to hide stuff. And that's where they're going to do things that aren't visible to you because they want to keep going with the activity. They want to keep their teams the same size. They want to keep their people trundling along doing the work. So they don't like the change that comes down from a CEO who can say really, really clearly, here's what we're going after. Here's what creates the most value for our business. Everything else we're going to cut. No, I think that's a fantastic answer. And I think uh, we'll put that in the show notes, that book, Levels of Work. So I think never a, a more critical time than now to, to do that. And I think uh, myself and no doubt other uh, leaders out there uh, often struggle with dipping down into the, the detail they don't need to, to the detriment of, of looking forward. So I well, think it's a really pertinent answer um, on that side of it. You mentioned before we're now leading in a way that we haven't led before and uh, I guess part of that is this notion of remote leadership and you talk about, you know, uh, focusing more on the outputs than the inputs and, you know, maybe there's an aspect of micromanagement historically. I'd see Marty's desk, he's perceivably working, he's in at eight, he's gone at seven, whatever the case is, and that's defined as, you know, Martin doing a good job. But uh, are there any sort of further tips or insights you can share around how to manage people remotely well and successfully? Yeah, so the object of the exercise hasn't actually changed here. What what the leadership task is, is really about connecting with and understanding the people who work for you, being able to give them real clarity around what your expectations are. People aren't complex beasts, right? When people come into work each day, they want to know three things, three just really basic things. Number one, what are your expectations of me? Number two, how am I going against those expectations? And number three, what does my future hold? And that's it. If everyone knew those three things when they walked into work each day, they would operate completely differently. Now, I test this pretty regularly, Sean, when I'm doing keynote speeches, although I haven't been in front of a large audience for quite a while, thanks COVID. But, uh, but I ask for a show of hands. When I say that, those three things, who can say with a, a high level of confidence that everyone who works for them knows the answer to those three questions each day when they walk in? And I'm lucky if I get 5% of the audience putting their hand up. Like we know that people don't have the clarity around what our expectations are and how they're performing, and they certainly don't know what their future has in store for them. So getting those three things out is really just a foundation for how do I give my people the clarity that they need to deliver what I need? It sounds really straightforward. Now, when you're in the same location, this is a lot easier to do because you can rely upon the micro conversations that you have all the time with people when you pass them in the corridor or work into their, walk into their workstation um, hive or whatever. Um, but these days, it's got to be a lot more deliberate. And if you haven't already established that level of relationship where you can have a free-flowing conversation with someone in that sort of leadership dialogue, you're pretty much rooted. Uh, so, <laughs> is that a technical so, you know, term, Marty? It is. It is, yeah. And look, I don't want to be, I don't want to be negative um, for listeners yeah. out there who feel as though they haven't got that relationship in place. But that's the sort of relationship you build that gives you the right to have these challenging conversations with your people, to stretch them, to um, to look at uh, and evaluate their results, to to confront them when they're not performing, uh, to sort out any issues they have. Like these these things are harder from a distance, from a remote location, than they are when you're in the same space. But if you haven't done that pre work, it's almost impossible. 
Yeah, well, I love the answer and the first part in terms of uh, the irony is that it is quite simple to ensure that, you know, all, all you need to do uh, in theory is uh, uh, clarify those uh, expectations, relate back to them and uh, let the individual know how they're going against them. But then also, you know, cast an eye to the future in terms of what does the future hold for, for them. Remarkably simple. But often, and, and clearly based on your experience and the feedback you get in your keynotes, uh, very rarely done. So I think that's a good opportunity for people to sort of pick up with, uh, pick up on and, and maybe have the discipline to utilize that framework. But I mean, just beyond that cultural question around leadership and I guess those relationships and the water cooler chats that don't maybe exist now, cultures are being tested massively further to individuals. Is there anything you can sort of share around how you can create that cultural health uh, in an environment like this, bearing in mind there is a, an awful lot going on and we don't have those spontaneous random conversations that we once used to, or even the, the visibility some days of Martin's up, Martin's down, how can I help, how can I intervene, those sorts of things. So have you got any sort of tips for, you know, uh, getting cultures to, to remain healthy? Yeah, once again, uh, you're going to find a large fragmentation in the workforce. Um, we've got a podcast episode, this on No Bullshit Leadership from a few weeks ago. Um, the fragmentation in the workforce creates problems because individual circumstances are so different. When mm. everyone's coming into a same location, it sort of has an equalizer effect. Everyone's working in the same circumstances, mm. conditions, and everything else. But working from home is massively different depending on the individual. So for me, um, working from home, which I can do quite readily, is probably one of the most pleasurable experiences you could imagine. There's just me and my wife, large house. I'll spend the day downstairs. She'll be upstairs. Uh, anytime we run into each other, we're very happy to do so because we actually like each other. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it must be really tough for people who have strained relationships who are struggling to spend the you know, two hours a day that they did with their spouses and now they're in the same location you know, 24-7 and they've got young kids they have to homeschool and, and, and. So... You know, every circumstance is different. Being tuned into that's probably quite important for a leader. But when we talk about forming culture, it's a it's a very very complex thing to do um, at at any time. Uh, doing it now is so much harder. Let's go back to the basics, though, Sean. It's about making sure that people understand the why first. Uh, Simon Sinek's got a lot to answer for for bringing that out, but it's a great question. Get, you know, first start with why. Uh, you know, what's the purpose of the organisation? What are you trying to achieve, and why are you there? And if that doesn't actually inspire and motivate people, then they're just going to be cranking the handle for you anyway. And it's establishing those really clear links. And this has got to be done through communication, both verbal and written, establishing those links between here's the purpose of the organization, here's why we're here, then come down to the next level. Here's what creates value for this organization and our major stakeholders. Then the next level. To create that value, here's the strategy we're going to adopt in the long term, and then come down to the next level again. To execute that strategy, here are the tactics we're going to deploy over the next two to three years, and all the way down to, here's what we need from you today. So it's just having that really consistent linkage from top to bottom, which if you say it easy, if you say it fast enough, it sounds really easy, but it's, it's incredibly complicated to do that well. And every layer you go down through the organization, you're going down through leaders who will either dilute or misinterpret the message. And so getting consistency between what's in the chief executive's head and what intent actually comes through to the person who's on the front line is sometimes their worlds apart. Um, but that's really where the culture is formed. And the expectations around you know behaviors are really important. Um, 
you know, the performance review cycle is really important, uh, making sure that, you know, the standard you walk past is the standard you set so that you are still diligent in upholding the standards for performance and behavior in all of your people, even though you need to take into account their personal circumstances for working. Um, and some people are going to have it easier than others and you just got to recognize that. I mean, the first uh, week of lockdown in Brisbane, uh, I live uh, quite close to a golf course here, you could not get onto the first tee on that Monday morning where everyone was locked out because uh, they're all working from home, right? <laughs> yep. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's insane, isn't it? And, and uh, I think uh, that uh, that aspect of communicating, um, you know, when you're co-located, arguably easier, but when everyone's sort of fragmented, uh, like you say, I think uh, a lot harder. Um, but never more important in terms of making sure that people are clear on, you know, the organisational purpose, what their role within that is and ensuring that everyone's sort of clear on that feedback loop to ensure that, I guess, the prosperity and the survival of some of these organisations. So a lot to adjust to. And I guess beyond what you've talked about already, there are additional stresses and challenges. You alluded to a couple there in terms of maybe, you know, the household environment that uh, one would normally escape from to uh, go to, a, uh, to, to their place of work. Now they're having to sort of juggle so many different things. So there's uh, abnormal or unique stresses there. How do you, I mean, I don't know if you've got any tips you can share in terms of how you get people in a headspace to perform at their best in spite of all of that. And dare I say it, get people to willingly give discretionary effort. I know that that's a, it's a big question and a, and a lot of complexity uh, getting in the road of that outcome. But what are your sort of tips or, or insights you can share there? Yeah, well, you know, it's not really that complex, Sean. It's really just about the same way we do everything else. You, you're dealing with humans here, so have a conversation. You know, here's here's what I expect from you. You know, how does your environment suit that? I know that you can't work between you know certain hours, and even even you know my business partner and daughter Emma. You know, there's days when she has to do the kids drop off and pick up at school. You know, those those are the days where she's not going to put in a ten hour day, and that's okay. I, I just say to her, you know on the days you can work, you're going to be on fire. I know that. Mm. So don't worry about anything you miss on these other days. It's, you know, we're flexible. We can work around that. Um, so it's giving people the license to live their lives, but to also have pretty clear expectations. If you're spending, you know, 12 hours a day worrying about family things and dealing with the pets and the kids and two hours working, that's probably not going to work either and you've got to find a better solution. But if you have a conversation to help solve the problem and to say, okay, well, here's your circumstances. How can you actually make that different? Because what I need from you is this. So how can we get that sort of um, performance and output from you? Uh, and if we can't, okay, well, let me understand what I can expect from you so that when these restrictions lift or when circumstances change, you know, you'll make up for that. So a, a little bit of tolerance and give and take is really important. Um, if you just hammer people and say, no, I don't care. You need to put this on my desk by Friday morning. If you're that sort of boss, uh, that'll just drive any sort of motivation and discretionary effort away. So it's, I, I think it's working with people, but also maintaining a standard that you need has to be upheld and not letting people take the piss. Uh, you know, if you, if you get onto Golf uh, golf Australia and see people's handicaps move uh, over a period of six months, you'd know who's working and who wasn't um, in some cases. So I can tell you mine's, mine's still pretty high. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I, and I think tying back to your earlier question around if you've got uh, clear, defined outputs then ultimately it catches up with you, doesn't it? So you can sort of, you can fox the system in the short term, but ultimately if you don't have those outputs in the long term or medium term, then it's going to catch up with you. But uh, yeah, I agree. I think the the people that 
you know and trust, uh, giving them that uh, tolerance or flexibility around their personal circumstances generally, that gets paid back uh, tenfold uh, in terms of meeting the expectations that you have for them. Um, but equally, uh, those that uh, are on the golf course, as you put it, as opposed to doing what they need to do, then you've got to confront that and have that conversation. I think it's having that honest conversation around uh, where both parties are at and, and what needs to be done. Uh, and sometimes maybe people shy away from that. So I think um, some good insights uh, on all that sort of sort of thing. But I want to transition to following your purpose. Now, you could have and were a very you know, a well-paid CEO, no doubt, uh, in a blue-chip environment, and you could have gone on and continued that for as long as you wanted to, arguably. You've chosen to pursue this new dream, which is your, you know, uh, assistance in improving the standard or quality of leaders globally, which is a bold aspiration, and obviously there's a big market for that. Can you talk us through that moment of making that decision to pursue your purpose? Um, obviously, you gave up a lot in that moment to do that. Um, so how can people sort of muster, you know, I guess similar courage to yourself and maybe de-risk a career move like that. Can you talk us through some of those things? Uh, yeah, gee, this, um, <laughs> this could be could be a really long story that I have to I have to actually cut back quite a bit, Sean. But I think um, I think I probably realised a long time ago. And when I say a long time ago, I don't know, close on 14, 15 years ago, that what I was put on this planet to do was not what I was doing. So I knew that my future took me in a place where I was going to have a big impact on people. And I'd always uh, been able to think quite ambitiously about what might be possible for myself. And any time I'd stepped out and sort of burnt the boats and just gone unequivocally towards a goal where I thought, I, I actually want to achieve this and I'm going to do whatever it takes, it's always worked out for me. Um, one of my close mates says that uh, I'm like a cat because I just always land on my feet. And uh, I've, I've employed that principle you know, throughout my life. You know, if, if I go hard and put everything that I know about being successful into a particular goal or aspiration, it will come true for me. And I think most people are exactly the same if they can put their mind to that, but there's a lot of fear along the way and a lot of things that can hold you back from actually pursuing the things that you want to. And um, when it came to this, I knew that I wanted to have more impact on people. I didn't know what the vehicle was going to be way back when I realized that this is what I was put on the planet to do. And as time went on, all the decisions I made led me to the choice I had a couple of years before I finished at CS Energy, which was, do I go and get another CEO role? Do I stay here and just renew my contract for another five years or so? What do I do now that I have the opportunity? And you know, I wasn't getting any younger. God, I'm, I'm 58 now. And so I realized that you know, if life's not an adventure, then what is it? You know, you've got to have a go and you've got to take some risk. And as I said, you know, what, what stops most people was what sort of drove me on. You know, I need to improve constantly. I need to be having more impact. I need to be getting better at what I do. And the clincher for me, uh, I was working with with a high-performance coach, Rachel Vickery, who's a fantastic person. She's come from the sporting field mainly and works with high-performance athletes, but, um, but for one reason or another was coaching me to get me through this decision-making process. And when we mapped it out and realized what drove me, which is the whole impact thing, she said to me, you know, well, how much impact can you have? If the biggest CEO job you can imagine, how much impact can you have? And I said, well, you know, like directly, I know what this game is. Directly, maybe I'll impact 100 people and 50 of those don't want to be impacted. 
so that sort of gave me the answer about impact. Sure, I can make a truckload of money, but um, but that's not the point. And I didn't want to get to the end of my life and look back and say, you know, I left something in the tank. I, I didn't do everything I could have done. And um, and that concept of not leaving anything in the tank and going boldly after the things that you want to pursue uh, is basically what's driven me for a really long time. So um, so taking this leap was the best thing I ever did. And and you know most people constrain themselves incredibly by um, placing artificial constraints uh, on themselves. So for example, you know, well I can't do this because of the kids they're in school. I can't do this because of my financial commitments. I can't do this because and it stops so many people from doing what they could do and could otherwise achieve. Most constraints are constraints we place on ourselves. And when I work with clients, I'll quite often say, you know, well, what would you rather be doing than this? And I get all sorts of answers to that question. And I say, well, why don't you do it? And they say, well, I can't. Well, why not? Well, because I have all these commitments. Well, could you unwind those commitments? And let's just suspend our disbelief for a minute. If you chose to do that, how would that look? And so when people start thinking through what their constraints are, then at least they have an unconstrained way to make choices. And they might still land at, look, the pain of unraveling all of this is greater than I think the upside is for me if I do it, and that's fine, but at least they've made a better choice because they can see that the constraints can be overcome. So for me, I just said to Em, look, we've got plenty of capital behind us. Let's just run this for six or 12 months, see if we build an audience, we're going into the most crowded market on the planet, which is leadership development. But you know, by the same token, it's a you know three hundred and sixty billion dollar US industry annually. So yeah, there's money out there if we're good enough. And I've always been the sort of guy that's happy to test myself in the market. You know, am I good enough? I don't know. The market will tell me. Is our content valuable? I don't know. The market will tell me. So just going out there confidently and saying we're going to put our best foot forward and put our um, content in the world because we do want to make a difference to how leaders lead. And, you know, let's just see how it goes. You know, we might get no nibbles at all within six months. And then what's the worst can happen? Well, I'll go back and get a job. So it's really a, a quite a low risk move, even though I had to sort of let go of what I'd build up in terms of salary capacity. The rewards on the other side, though, if everything goes to plan, are massively higher than I could have earned from a CEO salary. Just jumping in on that, mate, just a bit of a random question. Rate your happiness and fulfillment now versus being CEO of this big company. Good question, because as CEO, I was pretty happy, right? I, I enjoyed what I did, and I always enjoyed what I did, and if I didn't, I stopped doing it and did something else. Mm -hmm. So uh, my happiness as chief executive of CS Energy was probably an eight to an eight and a half. My happiness doing what I'm doing now is 11. I'm just in my element. So the way yeah. I describe it to people is, in my CEO role, 80% of what I did was awesome and I just loved it. 20% was grind. It was just shit. Right? And that, mm -hmm. that just comes with any sort of role. Mm -hmm. What I've done, I've taken the 80% of my CEO role that I loved and mm -hmm. turned that into 100% of what I do. Yeah. And there are still things that, you know, that are a daily grind. It's not, not every day I love sitting and answering, you know, 40 <laughs> questions on social media, but, you know, yep. But, yep. It's, but it's, you know, but the level of satisfaction now is so much incredibly high because there's a complete alignment between my purpose and what I feel as though intrinsically drives me and what I get to do. And every time I get a, 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 a an email or a direct message from a listener of the podcast who says, you know, Marty, I, I just love the podcast. I was really floundering. I found it, you know, just by looking at the you know, charts in Spotify and I started listening to it and it's really changed my life, not just my 
leadership, but also the way I am at home and with my kids and everything else. Now, we get those all the time. And every time I read one of those, I go, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm on the planet. That's what drives me. And that's what really makes me feel as though I'm on the right path. Um, and, and, you know, we get these from all over the world, from places that you just wouldn't believe, from from all sorts of countries, from, you know, from Ghana, from Denmark, from, you know, from Canada, from, you know, Brazil. I mean, they come from all over the world. And so being able to transcend that uh, is something that I never could have done as chief executive of, you know, even a massive organisation. I think that's an absolutely fantastic answer and, and congrats for taking that leap. Uh, but I think what's central to that, what I sort of heard is maybe that notion of a coach and you're obviously having this impact on other people at the moment, but that uh, Rachel, if my memory serves me right, Rachel Vickery being uh, central to you at that time to help you navigate maybe the definition of what your true purpose is, that, uh, I guess, that strategy of burning the boat so you're all in, there's no turning back and, and referencing the past going, every time you've done that in the past, you've been successful. No doubt navigating some of those fears along the way or moments of doubt, um, but also between yourself and her realising that you don't want a life of what-ifs or regret if you don't do this. And in the end, you know, the, there is a lot of constraints perceivably, but when you unwind those constraints and maybe that's done uh, by yourself or with a coach, you realise that a lot of those are artificial. Maybe that's just the fear at a subconscious level getting in the road of you taking that big step and I guess that last point is ultimately you've got to back yourself and, and obviously you've done that and uh, it's panning out well, which is awesome to see. So I want to go beyond that and, you know, I think it's evident by some of the things we've discussed already that you're a success driven. Um, Sean, also, look, it would be really remiss of me to not mention uh, my daughter and business partner, Emma. Uh, yes. I spoke about Rachel and she was instrumental in getting me in my head to sort out exactly what I was doing and she was incredibly valuable to me during that time, but it was Emma that had the vision for what your CEO mentor would look like with the podcast, um, with how we were going to reach leaders, her marketing and public relations expertise basically put us in a place where we had a potential business. Um, and it was amazing how transferable my skills from running major corporates was to coming back to a micro business, um, even though I didn't have a legal department to throw problems to or a, an accounting an accounting analytics team to get some modeling done. Um, but uh, but without Emma, none of it would have happened. Uh, and she was really the driving force between getting me to to make that leap between, you know, going on to another corporate role or the second option, which was doing what we're doing now as a side gig, which was, you know, what I thought was de-risk it. Uh, and she basically convinced me that it was the thing I had to do with my life. So, uh, so yeah, so, so you're pretty lucky when your daughter can do that to you. Yeah, well, I think uh, further to the coach, obviously Emma's complimented you as a sounding board or have a complimentary set of skills to help you realise where you want to go. And clearly you guys have formed a, a fantastic partnership. And I think beyond what we've talked about, uh, I also have a daughter uh, similar to you. And I, I would uh, yeah, I would imagine that uh, you know, going into business with her would be absolutely fantastic. So I think that's uh, extra special that you guys can offer different things in terms of this partnership to become successful, but working together to achieve something great. So I think that's um, it's a great sort of uh, final part to that answer. But uh, just going, you know, I guess, beyond what we've talked about already, it's, it's clearly evident that you're a, a, an overachiever, you're success-driven, you back yourself, you're prepared to back uh, invest in yourself, 
to go after what's important to you in life. But I want to I want to go beyond the good stuff. What mistakes can you share with the listeners that they might be able to learn from that you've made over your career? Maybe there's one or two you could touch on, Marty. Oh, gee, narrowing it down to one or two, Sean. Geez, I don't know about that, mate. Um, so I think my view on this, and they talk about, you know, uh, you see these inspirational quotes on LinkedIn or Facebook, you know, I I never fail, I either succeed or I learn, um, <laughs> which is which is a shocking cliche, but, you know, it, it has a ring of truth to it. So I had a couple of probably major failures in my past, and I spoke about dropping out of university, and yeah, you know, my my parents were catatonic about that, you know, because they they put all of their resources and and everything into educating their children, uh, and I didn't respect that, and I I sort of regret that only from that perspective because that was my path, but uh, but from the perspective of the grief it must have given my parents who were incredibly supportive um, despite that, and I'd see that as being probably one of my major failures, but also one of the most incredible blessings, and so I realised that uh, in every failure there's something you can take out of it that helps you move forward. There was a classic where a guy that worked for me in my first executive role at C-Level had made a pretty big mistake and it cost the business several million dollars. And this was when I was a CIO. And the business sponsors of this project were paying for blood. They wanted me to sack this guy. And I backed him and just said, you can't possibly be serious about getting rid of him now. He's a really good guy who has just made a pretty big mistake. And we've paid for him to get that experience. Like we've we've invested the organization's money to give him that experience. And now you want that experience to be reaped by one of our com- competitors? Like that's just stupid. And so basically the, the concept of you make a mistake like that, if you're a good person, that's the only time you're ever going to make it in your career. And you'll be a better person for having done that. And we've still got all the good stuff that you brought beforehand. So, so viewing failure as learning experience, um, as Will Rogers said, Good judgment comes from experience, and experience comes from bad judgment. So you've got to go through those those cycles. Um, probably one of the most common mistakes I made as a leader, and this might be interesting for, for your listeners, the most common mistake I made as a leader was giving people too much rope when they didn't have the maturity or the capability to deal with it. Now, this is super interesting, right? Because when I had the right people, it worked like a charm. It was just brilliant. But if I had someone who wasn't quite up to it, uh, they would fail spectacularly at a point in time that would make me look like an idiot and them (laughs) look like they didn't know what they were doing. And it took me a little while to work out what that right balance of between support and um, freedom was uh, in terms of how much accountability do I give them, how much empowerment do I give them, and how close do I need to stick to them in terms of making sure that they deliver results. Uh, And ultimately, every individual is different, as you know. But working out how to monitor and to inspect progress without actually getting in and doing their jobs for them or over, overcompensating or micromanaging them uh, was something that took me a long time to learn. And, uh, you know, e- even, you know, sort of, I don't know, in the, in the latter part of my corporate career, I was still making the mistake of giving people too much rope when they weren't ready to handle it, when they were too immature or not capable enough. What do you think that was? Do you think you were trying to take a bit of a blanket approach, you were stretched for time, versus it seems like you then drew the uh, conclusion that a tailored approach is necessary, you can't lead the same people with the same approach each and every time, and to support all of that, you need some controls to maybe check in and not do the job, but just sort of measure how they're they're travelling as such. So what what is the realisation there? 
Uh, yeah, it wasn't wasn't uh, time driven at all. I had plenty of time and have always spent a lot of time with my people. Um, part of it was the trust thing. So I knew that giving people trust to do what they had to do was really important. But uh, I love the Ronald Reagan quote. It's a very simple one, trust but verify. And sometimes I'd forgotten to verify or mm-hmm. I let them go for too long and listen to what they were saying before I actually inspected the outputs. And so making sure that that level of diligence was around it, not just believing what they were telling me, because everyone talks a good game. Once, once you get to executive level, they all talk a good game. Um, <laughs> you ought to know that, mate, with your business. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, best person on the planet? Yeah, probably not. So, yeah. um, uh, so, so just understanding that and you know, being really, really good at seeing the signs. Okay, so you're telling me something's been delayed here. Let's have a, let's have a look at where you are. Uh, and a lot of things um, just taught me to ask questions earlier, still giving people the trust and freedom to do what they could do. But when things weren't 100% in my mind, I learned to say, okay, I want to let you go. I want to trust you to do your job, but now you get to show me. And if the outputs aren't coming, then I'm going to go around real fast and start looking at the inputs and seeing what you're doing and how you're using your resources and whether you've got your people, you know, understanding what's required of them and everything else. And so just that trust but verify, like inspect those outputs early if you can't see the outputs coming through. I love the simplicity around that Ron Reagan uh, quote. Um, so it's a yeah, great, uh, it's good, isn't great. It? it is. It's uh, again, you know, uh, it seems too simple to be true, but uh, in essence, that's exactly what we've got to do. So I think that's um, a good thing people can pick up and listen uh, and, and take away. But um, Certainly conscious of your time. Obviously, you've got a lot on your plate, and I think part of that plate at the moment is writing a book. But beyond the podcast, beyond the program that you offer, and beyond the book that you might be able to touch on briefly, uh, can you talk to us about what other cool stuff yourself and Emma are working on and, and, and what does the future entail for you guys? Yeah, so um, so let's talk about the short term first. We're just about to launch the next cohort of our online leadership program, Leadership Beyond the Theory. And this is basically the way we describe it is when when people want to get serious about changing as leaders and doing something different, this is what they need to do. So a lot of people listen to the podcast, you know, tens of thousands of people every week around the world. For most of them, it's to put something positive in their head and they get some good ideas and some good quotes and some good concepts and some good stories, and then they go and do absolutely nothing with it, um, like, like most leadership stuff, like most things we listen to. Um, when you want to get serious and systematic about adopting the tools that are practically going to change the way you lead and you're ready to commit to that, then we say, this is your next step. So that's awesome, right? So that's just coming up. We start uh, end of August for that. Um, in the longer term, my plan is obviously to move to the US. So the book's going to be published by one of the big publishers out of New York. And the reason I decided to do that was twofold. The first is that that's the market where you get the biggest impact. And so I need to be in that market because that's what we're all about is the impact. And the second thing is that if you publish in Australia, that's the, the book never leaves our shores, even if you publish with one of the big publishers. In the US, they'll distribute into different countries, including coincidentally back into Australia. So, um, so having sought out a US publishing deal, um, that's really where the sweet spot is. Now, interestingly, <laughs> some would say that the uh, COVID pandemic has you know hosed all that down and that my plans to move to the US next year should go on hold. But for me, and in terms of the way I view success principles, this is just another barrier to test whether or not I'm serious. And so the vast majority of people 
run into a barrier and they go, shit, that's hard. I'm obviously not meant to do this. And they turn around. I love barriers because that's the point where most people turn around. And that's where I go, awesome. I must be on the right track because something hard has just been put in front of me to try and dissuade me from what I know I'm going to do. And so I clear that barrier. And there's less people beyond that barrier. And then you get to another barrier and it's harder. And the harder it gets, the more I love it. Because what that says to me is, you're on the right path to success because this is what turns most people around. And if you want to be successful, this is what you've got to do. So um, so I, I love these barriers, right? So when COVID came out, you know, Emma and I have had some pretty heated discussions about it um, with all the love in the world, just in terms of, you know, <laughs> should, I be, should I be heading over to the coronavirus hotspot on the planet? Um, but, you know, this stuff's going to work itself out, you know. Borders will reopen. Um, you know the markets will come back. Conferences will be held. You know I will be speaking at them, um, and um, and you know just pushing through those those things that stop most people. I, I don't know how it's going to happen, Sean. I've got no idea. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where we'll live. I don't know, yeah, yeah. Like none of that stuff. Um, I don't know what we're going to do with all our assets here, but it, it, it'll happen. It'll work itself out. And uh, once you set your mind on something like that, and with the right intent. And the right goal at the end of it all, which is to have this massive impact on the way leaders think and the way leaders lead, that's going to happen. You know, it's just just a matter of getting over those barriers. Now, I love the commitment and the drive to live your purpose, mate. And I think uh, some great examples uh, throughout the podcast thus far. So I think that's awesome. And uh, congrats on, I guess, the legacy you're creating in the process. Uh, obviously, in your corporate career, you did that and impacted a lot of people in a positive way. But obviously, the scale and reach of your learnings and lessons and knowledge is now reaching uh, many, many people, which is uh, admirable, mate, and no doubt getting bigger um, despite all the challenges that are in front of you. But just quickly, for people that want to find out more about the work that you and Emma are doing, how do they do that, mate? Yeah, thanks, Sean. So um, our website, everything is there, yourceomentor.com, and um, that's where you'll find everything, links to our podcast uh, you know the online program. We got a heap of free stuff there for people that just helps them with different things. So, uh, so all of it sort of comes to comes together there. Um, the podcast you'll find on any podcast player. We're always in the top charts for business on Apple and Spotify and others. So uh, it's called No Bullshit Leadership. In case you missed right. that, love um, it. But uh, I don't I don't swear too much on that. Um, I tend not to get too <laughs> excited. I think that's you know so sort of like low grade swear words. That's about it. But um, but I try and cut through all of the noise and the platitudes and the, you know, the nice words and motivational stuff to get to things that really make a difference. Like, how does it really work in leadership? Uh, and if I can keep doing that, I'll be a happy man. No, you're doing a wonderful job of that, mate. And beyond what you've talked about, I think uh, I and obviously a lot of other people follow you on LinkedIn to sort of keep uh, abreast of what you're doing and, and uh, you know, whether it's the... Uh, quotes or the podcast or you know some of the stuff you're doing with the cohorts and no doubt the book in, in the future so if people want to follow you there uh certainly look for martin moore on uh on linkedin but mate uh thanks so much i know that your time's precious you've got an awful lot of people after your time so i'm grateful that you took the time to catch up uh and i've got no doubt that people are going to take a lot from some of the stuff we've touched on today so you're a good man you're living a legacy uh thanks for joining us here today yeah, it's been a real pleasure, Sean. Thanks, mate. Hey, guys. Hope you enjoyed that uh, podcast from Martin Moore. He's, uh, he's talented. He's smart. He's energetic. 
and he's got a wonderful perspective through what he's doing uh, at the moment beyond his uh, successful career. So I really hope you enjoyed it. Uh, for those that uh, got some value, please feel free to send on to anyone else that uh, may also have an interest in, in the, I guess, the, the genre of leadership and, and ongoing development. Um, so feel free to pass on. But thanks again for listening today, guys. We really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to StellarCast. This show aligns with why Robbie McIlwraith and Sean McCambridge co-founded the company. Their mission was to help and nurture others to reach and exceed their potential. For trusted recruitment and career advice, contact Stella today.